0: We're happy to have this opportunity, Lee Garms, for recording additional experiences from your long career in films. Could you start by telling us a story about Ensville and George B. Ban?
1: Yes. Uh, Joe August, he was William S. Hart's cameraman in the early days. He was making a picture with George B. Ban in nineteen fifteen called The Alien from his Vaudeville skit called From the Sign of the Rose uh, at the New York Motion Picture Company's Thomas H. Innsville Studios in Santa Monica. Uh, it seems that the, there was a sunspot hitting the set that they were shooting in this particular day. They were in the open stages with diffusers over the top, and B-Ben wanted to know from Joe Loggs what they were waiting for. Joe told him they were waiting for um, a guy to uh, sew up the uh, hole in the diffuser so the sun wouldn't shine on a set he said why bother doing that why don't you get a painter he said let him paint it out this is about as much as george b knew about movies he was a theatrical man i thought it was a very funny incident
0: at this time i believe you were a property man and there was another amusing incident that concerned john gilbert who was working on a Uh, benet bennett film
1: john gilbert was in stock at the old Int studio in culver city along with alice tafe which later became alice terry he married Rex Ingram uh, John was getting about fifteen dollars a week as a stock player and he had a chance to become a leading man with a picture with Enid Bennett that uh, that uh, was directed by um, Reg- Reginald Barker and it meant that, uh, that John would have to have about five suits of clothes and John was only getting fifteen dollars a week and didn't have money enough to buy any clothes and the actors had to supply their own clothes at that time so uh, Reggie said he'd go to the studio and see if uh, the studio wouldn't pay for half the clothes, of which they finally agreed to pay half of. And he went to Foreman and Clark and bought himself five new suits of clothes. that cost $15 a suit. Yeah, but this was the start of his career as a leading man. That was about 1916. In 1924,
0: Lee, you worked on a film called Find Your Man.
1: Uh, yes uh, that was for warner brothers and it was a Rin tin tin picture directed by mal st clair eric st clair mal's brother was the leading man and uh uh, gerald zanuck was our uh, uh, writer and he had just recently married virginia fox she had been the leading lady to buster keaton Uh, june Marlowe was our leading lady and pat harrigan was our heavy we worked out of the town called klamath falls oregon and we used to run our rushes in a theater there owned by harry poole and he had two theaters another theater nearby and he used to bicycle prints back and forth from the two theaters he'd only pay the rent for one print and he'd show it in his two the time it so that he could run it in in the theater one reel at a time and bicycle back and forth and this was an indian reservation And the indians used to come in quite often to see pictures there in the theater and when it was uninteresting the indians would come out and sit on the curb and talk and smoke and so forth and finally when it became interesting again the indians would go uh, back in the theater again they do this all day long he didn't make very much money on his pictures when the indians went in because they took up all the seats Um, early one morning mal st clair decided that we ought to go up to klamath falls and uh, up to crater lake rather and get an early sunrise scene a love scene with eric and uh, june marlowe so we got up real early in the morning and drove up there at the mountains and got the all set up and rehearsed and everything Was waiting for the sun to come up the sun finally came up and in those days we had to make our dissolves in the camera rather than the lab the lab wasn't uh, uh, couldn't do it and at that time we had to do it with the camera so we made this nice pretty long shot as the sun came up and we dissolved to the close-up and i set the camera up to get the close-up and we dissolved in and we just started the scene on the close-up when some great big mosquitoes it was early in the morning they started the biting the back of the leading man's neck and he stopped the scene by hitting these mosquitoes in the back and of course it ruined it and we it was too late then to go back and do the sunrise scene again you edit this I suppose huh? okay yep. um this uh, uh, Lee Duncan owned this dog, uh, Rintin Tin. He was a wonderfully behaved uh, police dog. And most anything that the director or writers would want to write into a scene, why, it wouldn't take Lee Duncan very long to train uh, Rintin Tin to do these things. I remember the scene of, of uh, Rintin Tin trying to jump through the transom to save uh, June Marlowe from the heavy uh, Pat Harrigan. At that time, it was a very, very exciting... Uh, sequence and it was sort of unusual for a dog to be trained to do those kind of stunts. We used to crank the camera in those days at the 16 speed and 18 speed. Of course, if it, were, if it was a fast running scene, why we would undercrank uh, the cameras maybe 12 or 10 or whatever it was necessary to do. Of course, the, dogs, the dog running through the very pretty country, we would usually crank at 18 or 20 in order to see a little bit more of the scene and not have him just run through like a flash of lightning. Uh, on Sundays we used to go up to Fort Klamath. There was uh, an old house there They turned into a boarding house hotel boarding house and they used to have the regular family lunch every Sunday All you could eat Great big table with all the guests around and any visitors or friends that came around You'd have three or four kinds of meat and two or three different potatoes and salads and four or five different kind of breads and biscuits and coffee and everything else and Desserts all you wanted to eat for 35 cents was the total cost of the meal I wish those days would come back.
0: In Find Your Man, Lee, you worked under the direction of Mal St. Clair, and you subsequently made a series of films with him.
1: Yes, I did the Harry Whitworth stories, called Fighting Blood and the Telephone Girl series that we worked at the old robinson cole studio which is now rko studios Uh, daryl zanuck got his first chance with uh, us at that time by being the gag man and scenario writer for mal st clair in doing these two real uh, comedy little dramatic comedies and um, later on uh, we made we made about uh, uh, 12 12 or 18 of those Two real Whitworth comedies, and then Mal St. Clair went to Warner Brothers, and I went with him. And then later, uh, he went on to Paramount to do Grand Duchess and the Waiter, and I joined him there. Then we went to New York, and I made a picture with him there called A Social Celebrity, and The Show Off, and Popper's Sin. And Mal uh, stayed at Paramount, and I went over and went over to uh, South of France with Rex Ingram to do The Garden of Halla. That was in the spring of 1927 in Nice, France. We were doing the Garden of Valla. Uh We were on it about five months. We went to South Africa on many of the scenes, uh, North Africa, I mean, on many of the scenes, uh, Tunis and Biskra and places like that. Uh, Rex was a perfectionist. He was like William Wyler and Joseph von Sternberg. I remember I brought over a lot of Mazda lights in those days, and of course the Mazda lights in America were uh, built for hundred and ten uh, and all the French studio lighting was 220 so we had a lot of popping at times until the electrician could work out a way of bringing it down also uh, I wanted to do a certain dolly shot one time with Rex Ingram on a scene that I thought required a dolly shot And he said my god don't do that it'll take you a whole day to do that and we don't have that much time I said no it won't take long I said I've been making a lot of dolly shots and I said we do them in a hurry he said well okay so he stuck up some tuba 12s and made a little dolly out of a Ford uh, wheels and we did the shot in a couple of hours time and he was really amazed to think it was possible to do a dolly shot in that quick a time. Because Rex had been away from Hollywood for about three or four years and hadn't been back since so he wasn't attuned to the uh, new innovations and things that had been happening in Hollywood during the time he was away. While we were doing the uh, Garnavala, Alice Terry and Ivan Petrovich were our stars. We had a very difficult scene to do one day and rex was busy with some personal business in nice and antoni Marino had, had been played at play he played in a lot of rexinger pictures uh, rex asked him if he would direct this particular scene of which he did it was a very outstanding scene uh, rex at that time lived in the in a villa in the middle of the studio in the center of the studio he had a wonderful villa and he could do a lot of his artwork and painting and sculpturing and things like that i remember one time we were in uh in in, in uh, Tunis and uh, or Algiers, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We were in Algiers and I went shopping with him one time and he found an oil painting that we both liked very much and I admired it so much after he bought it that he gave it to me, he made me a present of it, and I've had it framed and I still have it all these years and I admire it very much. It reminds me of Rex Ingram and of those days with making the carnivala. Uh, Harry Lockman, who later became a director and worked at twentieth Century Fox and worked at uh, The old paramount studios in in london at that time uh, harry was our general manager and he was also our still-mannered portrait man and he had a young english boy around with him as an assistant to help him with a tripod and uh, help him do things and his name was mickey powell now the famous director in london Just a few days before we finished Gardner in Nice France with Rex Ingram, I received a telegram from George Fitzmaurice from First National Studios in Hollywood wanting me to join him. Uh, a little later on in the spring of 1927, I joined, uh, George Fitzmaurice to do a picture called The Rose of the Golden West with Mary Astor and Gilbert Rowland. I brought with me, uh, into the studio at that time some Mazda lights Uh, uh, George knew George Fitzmaurice knew a little bit about these because of a former picture that I had made with Florence Vidor and he was friendly with Florence Vidor at that time she told him about it so anyway we had electrical budget on the picture that the electrical department had worked up of twelve thousand five hundred dollars for this picture Rose the Golden West we were at a five-week schedule we worked a week longer on the picture due to story trouble and things like that so the total was shooting time was six weeks we finished the picture, and the total cost, because of using the Maza lights was thirty-one hundred dollars against twelve thousand five hundred. So you can see, I was sort of the fair-haired boy around First National Studios at that time, of of uh, making these pictures with the mazalite. Incidentally, this was a forerunner to uh, sound pictures because the Maza lights didn't make any noise where the old arc lights used to sputter and spit, and we'd have had an awful time making sound pictures with the old electrical equipment we had. In 1928, I made another picture with Fitzmaurice called *The Love Mart*, and then we made the famous picture *The Barker*. These were very, very wonderful pictures. It was wonderful working with, uh, with uh, George. Later on, we went to Honolulu, and particularly to Hilo, another island, uh, to make *His Captive Woman*. It was a very famous book with uh, Milton Sills and Dorothy McHale. We brought this picture back to the studio and then sound came in and warner brothers took over the first national studios and they asked us to remake all of the earlier sequences uh, other than what we'd made on uh, the location as a sound as sound so all of the courtroom scenes and the earlier part of the pictures that we could we remade as a sound so it was part sound and part talking and this was very interesting this was my first experience in talking pictures it was one of the early one of the earlier, or if not the first, uh, First National picture that had sound. And all in all, it was wonderful working with George Fitzmaurice. I learned a lot from him. He was quite an artist. He was also a perfectionist. Uh, While working at First National, after finishing uh, the George Fitzmaurice picture, uh, I was assigned to do a picture with a new Hungarian director by the name of Alexander Korda. Uh, he had his wife with him, Maria Corda. She was quite a star in European films. Our first picture was The Yellow Lily, made in 1928. But before that, we'd made uh, a great picture. Uh, in my estimation, it was a great picture. It wasn't a success box office-wise. It was called The Private Life of Helen of Troy. We had very interesting sets in that picture. The floors were painted black and the walls were painted white, or in some instances, the walls were painted black and the floors were painted white. it was a very beautiful picture uh from an art director's point of view and from uh the lighting and photography and the challenge we had with the big troy horse and all that sort of thing it was very very interesting then i made a picture with him called love 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 and the devil and then lilies of the field with uh, Corinne griffith it was very interesting working with her then quarter left first national went over to 20th century fox or went over to the old fox company while there with william fox then he left there and went to england and formed his own company called london films in 1936 Alex Corda sent for me to come over to work with him as a director under his guidance he was getting ready to do Sarana de Bergerac with Charles Lawton and Vivian Lee Vivian Lee was just a stage girl I made her first test that later uh, she signed a contract with Corda uh, uh, on the way over on the boat to London I met Doug Fairbanks senior and he said what are you doing on the boat and I said what are you doing on the boat And uh, he said, I'm going over to see Alexander Corda. And I said, well, I'm going over there to make a picture with Alex Corda. And he said, well, that's odd. He said, "Uh, I'm going over to offer him my ownership in United Artists. He said, he doesn't know this yet. He said, you know it before he does. And I said, well, this is interesting. Uh, He had made it very uh, definite to Charles Lawton and I through telegrams and letters and so forth that we were to get over to London as quick as we could. I uh, flew to New York and got on a fast boat and... About a week later Charles Lawton had finished some retakes on a picture at MGM and he got on a train, and, or flew to New York rather, and then he got on a fast boat and we met one day, the first day that Lawton arrived in London, we met and went over to the studio to see Corda and we were going through the lot on the grounds to see Corda to his office and we bumped into Alex in the lot and Alex shook hands with him and looked very surprised says, well Charles, what are you doing here? Charles says, well Jesus, don't you know, he's said, like, I want you to do a picture with you called to Bergerac. Oh, that's right. He said, well, look, see, don't, don't, don't worry about me. so I'm all excited. He says, I've just become an owner of United Artists. He says, I'm going to leave to, tonight to go back to New York to sign up all the papers. And if You and Lee get busy on the story, and I'll get with you when I come back. I'll be back in about two or three weeks. Well, Charles and I both looked at each other and thought, well, why should we be in such a hurry to get over here? Well, neither one of us liked to fly, and we had to fly and break our necks to get here in a hurry for what? Anyway, it was very interesting, and we thought it was a lot of fun, and and uh, so forth anyway he became a, an owner of United Artists and he made a lot of pictures and he finally uh, got a hold of Montague Marks his business manager and studio manager and asked him to try to find some new uh, grounds a new acreage to build a studio so I went searching with Monty Marx. we finally found the present site where the Denham studio is now located and Monty uh, made a deal there and bought the grounds and so forth showed them to Alex we all liked him and he finally built a very beautiful studio called the denim Studios. Uh during the time that Alex was in New York signing up the contracts to be part owner of United Artists, uh Charles Lawton and I used to meet every day in his apartment, and Charles had a, a small recording uh tape Recording uh, outfit machine and he'd walk up and down the room recording different passages from Serrano from the script and from the book and play and so forth and and he wouldn't play them back And the next day we'd rehearse a little bit more and go through different scenes and things like that And sometimes the writer would be present and sometimes he wouldn't and then after about four or five days or a week Why at the end of the week particularly Charlie Charles would would play back these uh, Recordings to see if he'd improved he was also a perfectionist i mean he really took acting as a profession and really worked at it very hard i have all the respect in the world for mr lawton as, a, as an artist well after doing all of this work alex finally came back from new york and we built a few sets for surrounded Bergerac, and we made a lot of tests with vivian lee to play roxana she was to shave her head so she could wear a wig and not make it look so big and bulky and she didn't want to do this and she had a rather long neck we had to costume her clothes so they would cover up her long neck because she didn't know whether she wanted to play roxana or not anyway finally lawton and 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 corda couldn't agree on the script and finally they scrapped the whole idea and we never did they never did the picture and uh alex later sold his script to uh kramer and kramer made it with uh uh jose ferrer, jose ferrer anyway that's all i can say at the moment about corda i loved him very much he was a great great man a great promoter and a great human being and he was certainly wonderful to me i'm getting a little ahead of my story i better get back to 1929 i was assigned to do a picture with reginald barker an old old friend of mine from the early Ince days we made a picture called the great divide with dorothy McHale. We went to a location in zion national park we went up there and did it uh, the scenes as silent uh, it was a, it was an all-talking picture but we took no sound with us on this location we just did long shots and medium shots and i remember we took still pictures of the different backgrounds that we knew we were going to use as close-ups and they made shipment enlargements this is prior to back projection We made these large shipment enlargements and for all of the close-up actions to match the long shots we did we did all those at the studio we put them outside in the sun and let the sun hit the backings and let him hit the actors and so forth and did all our close-ups and when the people saw the picture they felt that we did the whole picture in on the location it was a it was a cheater but it was well it was well done and reggie barker had been a very famous stage director in her earlier days so he sort of fell into the talking picture uh, era uh, with uh, both feet He was another wonderful person to work with. I always admired him very much. this leads me into a little later on. I went over to do a picture at Warner Brothers. They were the owners at this time of First National. I did a picture at Warner Brothers with Al Green, another wonderful director and a wonderful guy, a picture called Disraeli with George Arliss and Joan Bennett. Uh, In those early days of sound pictures, we always used five and six cameras, and they were in big, uh, ugly-looking booths and they were hot and stuffy inside. They were all sign and everything. We had to just put any kind of lighting in there. Sound was more important than lighting. I don't know where the picture business got the idea that they could release a picture with sound without good photography, but they did because it was a new wrinkle. But later on, we tried to do everything we could in order to get away from using the five and six cameras. Well, Al Green and I got in the huddle one day and we decided to go out on an exterior to uh, uh, the gardens out in Pasadena, the bush gardens and a big home out there we, we used that home as georgia supposed to be george arliss's home in england and uh, al green told the sound department and the production department that we only wanted to take two cameras and they said oh you can't do this this will be wrong you've got to use five and six cameras said, no he said, let's go out and let's try it we got something we want to try up our sleeves so we went out and we used one and two cameras all day long and and uh recorded the way we felt we should make a movie the way they should be made and by golly, they liked this very much at the studio, and they finally decided that this was a, a new way of doing it that, it, that it could be done with one and two cameras, and uh, uh, for then on, the fussy directors only used one or two cameras. And this was the beginning of really making sound pictures, and that devel- finally developed into using it on film rather than on the records. And I've always taken my hat off to Al Green for having this idea and for having the gumption enough to stand up and go and do it and al green was another very wonderful guy to work with and a very fine director it was a pleasure working with these different people i'd like to go now to 1930 to samuel Goldwyn, united artists whoopee this was a technicolor a two color technicolor picture two film, they used two films at that time thornton freeland was the director Uh, this was a big extravaganza picture the lighting bill on this picture whoopee uh, amounted to over a hundred thousand dollars they built all of the exterior settings which were supposed to be in arizona they built them all on the stage and we had to because it was my job to make them look like they were out in the hot bright arizona sunlight so you can see why the Cost uh, went up to $200,000. This was a very interesting picture. had a lot of wonderful music, wonderful costumes, and it was the beginning of the real good dance routines that. Uh, hold a minute. Have to... this, was the, this was the beginning of the good dance routines by Buzz Berkeley that he became world famous for. He made lots and lots of pictures. As a dance director, and later became a very fine motion picture director. Uh, then uh, a little later on, I went over to Paramount and joined the Paramount Pictures Corporation and did four films with von Sternberg. One uh, was called Morocco with Gary Cooper and Dietrich, was Dietrich's first American picture, and then Dishonored with Dietrich, American Tragedy with Philip Holmes and Sylvia Sidney, which I'll tell a little bit, a uh, little more about in a moment. And then the famous, uh, the very famous picture, Shanghai Express, with Dietrich and Clive Brooke and a wonderful cast of actors. Uh, incidentally, on Shanghai Express, I won the Academy Award that year for the Black and White uh, Best Photography. And I'm very happy to say that I've cherished this award very much. I learned a lot for Joe von Sternberg. Although he was a caustic man, he was a wonderful director and was a perfectionist. I remember he used to we used to work till till sometimes two and three o'clock before we go to lunch. And I think the reason of this is that Marlena would always bring in thermos bottles of blackberry juice and raspberry juice and little cookies and cakes and things. And Joe would be munching on these all day long. So when it came lunchtime, he wasn't hungry, but it didn't make any difference to the crew, he was a little czar and he wanted to run the show the way he wanted. But all in all, he was a very nice person. He was a very fine director, made a lot of wonderful, interesting pictures. Then I had a cameraman with me, Lester White. He was my second cameraman, and he didn't like Joe von Sternberg. He took—he uh, and von Sternberg used to fight quite a bit. But I think that uh, I think that Joe liked to argue and fight with people. He got a big kick out of this. Joe used to eat a lot of garlic in those days, and he'd come back and look in the camera, and he'd get the camera booth all full of garlic smells. And Lester White couldn't under- couldn't stand this, so he'd get a flip gun, and he'd go around after Joe would look to the camera. He'd put this foot gun on and get rid of all of the garlic smells later on we made a picture up in uh, Lake Arrowhead called the American tragedy with Phillips Holmes and Sylvia Sidney and uh, the first day out we got into a boat to Scott from some some locations and Joe was dressed up with uh, riding boots and a pith helmet and uh, he looked anything except a guy that should be out on a boat and Lester White in a very loud voice says if that guy comes on the boat with that goddamn outfit on he says I'm going to throw him overboard and if he goes overboard he won't be able to swim with those boots on he'll just drown he will probably be good for the picture industry if he does drown and with this von Sternberg didn't believe this so we started out on the boat we got about 20 or 30 feet finally he told the boatman to go back to the pier again he got back to the pier he got up on the pier took his boots off came back in his stock and feet and we went out looking for locations
0: <laughs> then you were followed by a huge cartage weren't you of equipment
1: You were followed by a huge cortege of equipment, weren't you? That's right. Dick Johnson was our production manager. He later became the studio production manager of Paramount Studios. He had all the boats rigged up with all the paraphernalia and the camera equipment and the lighting and the props and the reflectors and everything else. And we looked like a a big, long trailer going along. We followed Joe von Sternberg wherever he went with his little boat to look for locations. Dick Johnson had all the other boats following him It looked... uh, rather like a a, a wonderful scene to look back and see all these things following us Um, a very funny incident that happened on uh, american tragedy we had a new york street scene at the studio later on in the picture with philip holmes and sylvia Sidney. and this street scene was about a block long we had dolly track laid up laid on the sidewalk and we started working one evening as soon as it got dark and philip holmes had made up his mind that he was going to play the scene the way he wanted to play it as an actor not the way von sternberg wanted it as uh, as as he had seen it he would do it directorially the way uh, von sternberg wanted it but he didn't want to do it acting wise the way von sternberg he wanted to do it the way he wanted to do it anyway we did this scene all night long we went to dinner at midnight went to midnight supper rather And we kept doing the scene over and over and over and over again and Going the whole length of the street the boys the poor guys were pushing that dolly all night long When the Sun came up the next morning, we were still on the same scene We never redid it Uh, evidently uh, Von Sternberg had given up that Philip wasn't going to do it any different and Philip made up his mind He wasn't going to change so I don't know who won whether Joe won or whether Philip won I know that we wasted a whole evening to do the whole night to do just one scene This was one of those things about making those pictures of Von Sternberg. He felt that he wanted it his way, and the actor wanted it his way. But that's picture making.
0: You were telling about uh, making a particular scene in Dishonored, uh, and this, I think, well illustrates um, Von Sternberg's handling of his acting.
1: Well, this shows uh, how meticulous he was and what a perfectionist that Joe Von Sternberg was. I remember we had a scene in Dishonored. It was in an exterior of uh, a house it was raining and we did it on the stage and the scene was with Dietrich and with von Seifertitz and with Victor McLaughlin and uh, Joe would do the scene uh, five or six or seven times and he'd only watch one actor for instance we started this particular scene with these three artists in it well he would watch von Seifertitz and he would keep correcting von Seifertitz until after he got him the way he wanted him then he would watch Victor McLaughlin and he finally would do six or seven takes with victor mclaughlin and he finally got satisfied with the way victor was doing it and the way von sarvich was doing it in the meantime dietrich was sort of back a little bit smug thinking oh this is fine he's not going to pick on me but she had another call coming because pretty soon he looked at her and he said now we'll get on you marlena it's just we'll we'll watch your performance so we did it another eight or ten times until he got it the way marlena wanted it so all together we made about 25 or 30 takes before he got the scene the way he wanted it but again this was joe von sternberg and he's way of working and his perfectionist and in those days Joe von Sternberg made wonderful interesting pictures and it's a shame that this man couldn't have gone along with the times of today and become a little bit more economical because Joe had a lot of uh, picture-making qualities had a lot of interesting ideas technically and camera wise and lighting wise and photography wise I can only say that I admire Joe very much I learned a lot from him my early experience with Joe as a cameraman was invaluable. I can never thank him enough for the experiences and the and the help and the ideas that I got from Joe, and has stuck with me all these years.
0: And one day he showed you something about composition.
1: We were talking about composition one day, and Joe said, well, you can make composition out of most anything. And I said, what do you mean? So there was an empty set there, and he threw up a couple of ladders and some chairs and a couple of horses and, and saw horses and things. And, He started fussing around a little bit. He said, all right, now go look through the cameras and tell me whether you like that composition or not. Sure enough, it was a very striking composition. You could have played most any kind of a scene there if you'd have wanted to. It all depends on what you wanted to play, but it was an interesting composition. The man was truly an artist. He was a sculptor and a painter and an artist. He knew knew his job. He knew his business.
0: During the making of Shanghai Express, there was a difference of opinion about the interpretation of
1: Clive Brook's role yes uh, there was at one time he and Clive Brook sort of disagreed uh, on, a, on a certain way the performance should be played uh, there was no hollering and yelling uh, Joe never raised his voice uh, Clive Brooke wanted to leave the picture and Joe said no Clive you're going to be in the picture now you just pay attention I'm here to make a good picture and you're here to act in a good picture and I see it one way and you see another but I'm the boss I'm the director he never raised his voice, he never got mad, he never got mean about it, he, never, he just was a little sarcastic at times about wanting it very quiet and wanting everybody to move around when the scene was being taken, and I think he was right. But uh, he finally uh, uh, made uh, or persuaded Clive Brook to do the scene the way he wanted it done, and I think all in all Clive gave a wonderful performance. At least it was different than what he'd been doing before in his pictures. I mean, Joe was meticulous, and he wanted to make sure that the... Actors gave him the kind of performance that he wanted, not the way they wanted it. And then there was a bedroom set with gauze. Oh yes, the, when we were doing Shanghai Express, uh, when we were in some of the in the in the um, Chinese uh, hotels or something, we had some very uninteresting bedrooms. And Joe had suggested to the uh, set dresser to put some gauze curtains over the beds like uh, they have in some of the European countries today to keep out the mosquitoes and the bugs. And I said, well, Joe, does this belong in a set like this? Do you think this belongs in China? He says, well, he said, I asked you, you saw it without the gauze on there. He said, you see it with the gauze. Now, which was most interesting? I said, well, with the gauze. He said, well, Lee, I'll tell you one thing. He said, "Um, to me, in making motion pictures, we are in a make-believe business and if we can make something interesting even though it's not authentic he said i think it's up to us to make it worth interesting to the public and he said we can make them believe it if we do the scenes right and we'll make them believe that they that this particular hotel had these kind of rooms and had these curtains sure enough he certainly made the scenes interesting enough and everybody believed it they didn't question at any time i never heard any comments about it except uh, raves they all raved about it and i know when the picture was first previewed and the the uh, hollywood reporter sent out a a critic to to uh, review the picture the night we had the sneak preview the next day across the headlines of The Hollywood Reporter it said Garms and von Sternberg score again so we were off to the races which later uh, became a very very big financial success the picture was heralded everywhere as a great great picture it helped Joe along in his career and it certainly helped along in mine and I'm certainly grateful that everybody that voted for the picture photographically uh, would cast their vote for me because it was wonderful winning that Academy Award.
0: Before we leave the von Sternberg period, Lee, there are two more stories about Morocco. There's one I have marked yawning epidemic.
1: Well, Morocco (coughs) was supposed to be Gary Cooper's first Paramount starring role. Uh, And as everybody knows, Marlene Dietrich had made one picture with von Sternberg in Germany called The Blue Angel. And he had uh, persuaded Paramount to put her under a long-term contract, and he wanted her to play the leading lady in this particular picture. So it really became a co-starring vehicle for Marlene Dietrich and for Gary Cooper. Well, we were working such late hours and in these cooped-up, stuffy stages that there was not much air in the stages. And Cooper used to yawn a lot, and I used to yawn a lot. And von Sternberg used to tell us off. He used to say, look, if you're yawning like this, you can't be very interested in your work. And we both said, yes, we're interested in our work, but there's no air in here, and uh, uh, yawning is not, uh, we don't believe that yawning means that we're not interested. We just can't help it. I mean, there's not enough air in here. So we yawned a few more times, and Joe didn't like this very much, so he finally said, the next time anybody yawns, we're going to call a day's work off. So with this, Cooper let out a great big yawn and made a lot of noise with it, and, and von Dernberg says, that's all for the day. We're going to go home. So we had a half a day off.
0: And how about Hector Turnbull? Morocco. Hector
1: Turnbull was our, we didn't have producers as they call them today, we had story supervisors. Hector Turnbull had written the script on Morocco, and he was sort of the <clears throat> the watchdog for Paramount, or the producers you might call him, and although he was called a supervisor. We had been working quite hard out on the Lasky Ranch, the famous players Lasky Ranch, and we came in one evening and uh, Hector Turnbull had uh, sort of Cornered us, uh, the two of us, Von Sture and myself, and started uh, giving us a uh, hades because we were taking so long on the picture. We were going to go way over on our on our time on it. And he said, "No matter what you do, the picture is sold in a certain in a certain uh, releasing slot. We'll get no money for it, no matter what you spend on it. It's a program picture, and uh, you just have to you just can't take all this time. You got to go in there and bat it out and get get the picture out." And I remember telling Hector Turnbull I thought he was making a mistake, that I thought he was going to have to eat his own words, because this was an extraordinarily good picture. It was with Gary Cooper, and it was with Marlena Dietrich, and they were two new stars, and that they were going to have something to sell on, sell our uh, picture on, and that he shouldn't be, shouldn't be that way. I said, I think you're going to feel sorry for this. Well, anyway, we finished the picture in due time, and the picture was previewed, and it got wonderful notices, and... Hector Turnbull did come to us later and apologize for the way he acted, and as I recall, it was the first picture to ever play, Groman's Chinese Theater, first Paramount picture to play the Groman's Chinese Theater, and this was a great uh, uh, coup for Paramount because they had been trying to get into the Chinese for many years, and they played there for weeks and weeks and weeks. It played all over, it made a lot of money. It was a big money picture. They changed it. They took it out of the program glass and and release it as a Paramount Special, and it did a lot for Dietrich, and it did a lot for, uh, for uh, Mary, for uh, Cooper, for Gary Cooper, and it certainly did a lot for, for my career and Joe von Sternberg's career. And I'm very grateful for that experience and for working von Sternberg. We've been friends through all the years, and I admire Joe very much. I think he's a very fine man, a very clever man. If you understand his little ways of working, why, it's all right. If you don't let it get under your skin, why well, it's okay.
0: One final von Sternberg anecdote about his desk light in London.
1: Oh, yes. He was doing a film in London with Charles Lawton and Merle Oberon called I, Claudia. The picture was never finished because I think uh, something happened to one of the players, to Merle Oberon, and they couldn't continue on with the picture, so they cashed in on the insurance and called it off. But Joe used to keep the stage very black, except right around where the set was working, and he had a very tall desk, and he had a little baby spotlight on his desk that he used to always reflect on the his script and things, and when people would come in, he'd turn the spotlight on and find out who was coming in. One day, he was at his desk, and he heard the door open. He turned the spotlight around, and a figure came in that he didn't recognize in the dark, and he turned the spotlight on him, and, of course, it blinded the guy, and he said, Who are you? And he says, Uh... Victor Saville. He's, my name is Victor Savile. And he said, oh, he says, who are you? He says, I don't know you, do I? Anyway, Victor Savile was rather embarrassed by this, and he just came over to pay his respects. But this was Joe. He, he's uh, that kind of a guy. He doesn't mean these things. It's just his little sense of humor that he feels he has, but sometimes it doesn't always work out all right. this brings us now to 1931 after making the pictures with Gary Cooper with von Sternberg I made another one right after that called fighting caravans Uh, that was with Gary Cooper and Lita Demita and Ernest Torrance and Fred Kohler we made that up on location in Sonora it was uh, sort of a covered wagon it was a very tough rough picture very hard to do then a little later I did another picture in April I think it was in 1931 called City Streets with a new director to Hollywood, Reuben Mamoulian. He was from the stage. He'd made one film in New York. And this also starred Gary Cooper and was Sylvie, also was Sylvia Sidney's first picture. Paul Lucas and William Boyd was in, was in that picture. And I remember Sylvia Sidney sitting on the sidelines with the glasses on and with her knitting. And uh, whenever she'd have to read her lines off stage, why you'd sort of look at her and say, my God, this girl can't be the great actress. What did they bring her out here from New York for? What has she got? But anyway, uh, Ruben and and I used to sort of look at each other. He, of course, he knew she was an actress more than we did, but we still wondered. So I asked uh, the director one day, I said, I'd like to see some stuff uh, cut together, see how Sylvia's look coming out. I said, I'm interested. He said, all right, fine. he said, you got hold of the cutter and we looked at a couple of reels of cut stuff. And believe me, there's no more qualms about Sylvia Sidney. She, when your stuff was patched together, this film was patched together, she really put on a performance. This girl was a great actress. Little did we we realize uh, during the day, during the takes and the scenes, the way she worked around there, she was just Sylvia Sidney when she was knitting, but when she got in there to a moat and played her part, she wasn't Sylvia Sidney anymore, she was the part she was playing. And this is what showed up on the screen, and it certainly was a godsend and a great great thing to have an actress like this. A little later on in the same picture, we had a rather important set that Ruben Mamoulian, the director, had told the art department and the art director, that he wanted this door to function very properly. He wanted it to close right, he didn't want it to stick, he wanted the doorknobs and the lock to work right and everything else. And they said, oh, that'll be all right, Mr. Director, we'll take care of that. So we got on the set the next morning, we started rehearsing the scene, and the door stuck, and the doorknob wouldn't work. And William said, I'll be gone a little bit, I'll come back in about a few minutes. He says, I'm, I'm going down, down the office. So he went into Mr. Schulberg's office, B.P. Schulberg was the studio manager at that time. He went into Schulberg's office, and he raised holy hell about that he didn't want to make any more pictures in Hollywood, that uh, doors stuck, and this wouldn't work, and that wouldn't work, so finally Schubert came up with him on a set, brought the art department up, and it was a lot of hell to play there for a few minutes, but from then on, anything Mamoulian wanted, he got, which only proved that if the director would fight for his rights, he'd get the things that he wanted, and rightly so. He wanted the door. The door was very important in the scene to work right, and he should have had it made right. It was just lax on somebody's part. They were a little bit lax, and Mamoulian was uh, certainly right. And there's another great artist, I mean, William is a great director, and we had a lot of fun making that picture. I enjoyed working with William very much.
0: Was he very used to screen techniques at No, the time, he maybe? wasn't.
1: Uh, I, uh, this was one of his early films, and uh, uh, he was very uh, willing to take suggestions and ideas from me or from the script clerk, and um, we would watch him very carefully. If a person entered the screen uh, wrong, we would tell him about it, so they'd come in from the other side, or if the tempo didn't quite match with the scene before, I way to re- remind him of it and he took this very willingly and very very graciously he was he was always willing to uh, learn uh, about making pictures he was always asking questions he was asking about lighting effects and camera technique and he was a great one for composition he loved good composition he wasn't as meticulous or as uh, fussy as uh, some of the other directors that i mentioned before mm-hmm. but he still in his own way he was very careful and and worked very hard to uh, to make a good film. He, he, was, he was certainly a hard-working director. I can certainly give Ruby Mamounian a very big star.
0: And then came Scarface?
1: Oh, a little later on, yes. Uh, I was loaned out by Paramount to do Scarface with, uh, with Howard Hawks for United Artists. That was a, a very another wonderful film. That was for Howard Hughes. Uh, we had a lot of fun making that picture. I was on that for about four or five months with Howard Hawks. I enjoyed working with him immensely. He, Certainly had a wonderful lot of good ideas. I know he'd come in in the morning, he'd say, Lee, he says, come on, bring up a chair. He says, I want to talk a little bit about something. And We'd sit down he'd talk about a scene. He'd say, you know, it might be kind of fun if we were to have the camera do this and peek in on this and not let it look like there's a camera on it at all. He said, let's just look like we're unfolding a story and trying to tell it the best we can with a camera. But that's, let, let's not make it look like it was made in Hollywood or, or the techniques that we are doing in Hollywood. Let's try and be a little bit unusual, a little bit different. And I will say that Howard has always carried on his picture-making this way. He certainly has been one of the few directors that I know of in Hollywood that practically every picture that Howard has made has been a money-making picture. There's been one or two or three that he's made that hasn't made uh, a lot of money, but uh, all in all, I think he's one of the top money-making directors in the film business. I don't know of anybody that has a better record or is a nicer person to work with. He's just a dream boy for my dough. Next we'll come to 1933 at the old Fox studio, the zoo in Budapest. This was Jesse Lasky's first independent picture after leaving Paramount, and he brought with him Roland V. Lee as the director. The players were Loretta Young, Jean Raymond, and O.P. Heggie. It was a wonderful picture to make. It was very interesting in that it all took place within one day. The beginning of the film was supposed to be late afternoon in a zoo in Budapest. And then it went into evening, and then it went into midnight. We did all of the work on the back lot of the studio. Never left the studio at any time. We did all of the uh, night scenes in the daytime. I used neutral density filters. I used the lighter filter for all of the day day scenes, a little heavier filter for the late afternoon scenes, and the very heavy neutral density filter on the Eastman film for the night scenes, for the midnight scenes. And this gave a strange quality it was a different quality than we usually get in the in the uh, regular film without using these neutral densities i had great luck with it i was very very pleased with it in many of the scenes we were shooting we had telephone poles that marred our background and i had the green man this is the man that's that's assigned to the picture to look after all of the green plants and trees and things i had him cut some tall bamboo trees and they were very light to handle they were very tall and we put those At a little distance and line up four or five of them in a row and that would block out the telephone poles in the distance and would give us also a very interesting background to sort of cover the sky i remember also i went with this same green man earlier before the picture started we went to two or three nurseries and picked out a lot of wonderful leafy uh uh, green plants that were in cans or containers and we used these, when the picture started, we used these off on a sideline, and each composition, we would put these green things in the foreground, and we'd build up our own composition, and make it look like they were, were growing there. This gave us a chance to do what we wanted to do, sort of paint, as it were, with the camera and with these green plants. The, uh, the scene that was uh, shot in the lake, in the, we, we came one early one Sunday morning, when it was all quiet, and there was no wind, and we put a heavy mist over the lake and it stayed there because it was quiet and it was cool and it was before the sun had come up too high and we made that wonderful scene where Jean Raymond carried Loretta Young through the lake and took her over uh, to safety or wherever it was. Then I remember an incident with a cave. We had a real bear cave where Loretta Young hid out so they wouldn't be able to find her. <clears throat> this was a rather large cave. We made it look like a real cave we only had the entrance at the bottom where the bear came in then we had a a window up higher where the light came in and air and i used these two uh, sources for my light i used no other light except where it would come in and where loretta young would be coming through if the light hit her face or her clothes i just let it go that way it made it very natural and very real the um uh, i also uh wrote a very strong letter to mr Sidney kent he was running the old fox uh, uh, distribution releasing company at that time he was the head man of the of the uh, studio of the company and i had talked with jesse lasky about the prints i wanted to make sure that this was such a lovely picture i want to make sure we got real good prints and i ca- caused such a furor that mr kent sent out alan friedman he was the head of the fox laboratory in new york and i had quite a discussion with mr friedman i said that i didn't think that his lab in new york was qualified to do the release prints that I wanted the all the night scenes to be printed on Eastman what they call Eastman Midnight Blue print stock, and I finally won out they finally uh were they convinced me that Alan Friedman in New York could give me good release prints as good as they could get and from the from the Hollywood lab I didn't believe it, but I wanted this argument to go along in order to try to persuade them that this, this was an unusual picture and to really strive to uh, make a better um, uh, picture out of it than the ordinary or ordinary program picture which they did I was very proud of this picture also um, when it came time for the Academy Awards to uh, to uh, (coughs) uh, put up your pictures each cameraman had to put up their pictures each year for the Academy Awards the camera department the head of the camera department came to me and said Lee you won last year on Shanghai Express and the boys feel that the zoo in Budapest is going to give them strong competition And they've asked me to ask you if you wouldn't mind not entering your picture this year because they felt that you were too strong a competition and they'd have a better chance and you'd won it last year and that you're sure to give other boys chances. So I abide by their wishes. I didn't even enter it into the award uh, that year. This is uh, probably a mistake, but I'm sorry about it. Uh, uh, Another incident that happened during the making of Zoo in Budapest. One of the animals, I believe it was a panther, got loose and got up to the top of the stage. We had to clear all the actors and all the people out of the stage so that the animal uh, trainers could get in there and with strong lights and things had to climb up and finally get the, the uh, <coughs> animal down and get it back into a cage. But this was a rather, uh, 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 an incident that I don't think was much publicity about it, but it was one of the things that you do when you make these kind of pictures. It was very interesting making this film. Roland V. Lee was a wonderful man to work with. And Jesse Lasky, it wasn't a nicer man alive than Mr. Lasky. He was really a gentleman at all times. I remember I went to him just before the picture started in um, 1933, and I said, Mr. Lasky, I'm engaged to be married. And I said, uh, you've postponed the picture for about uh, a week or so. This will give me time to get married and have two or three days honeymoon. Do you mind if I take off and, and get married? He said, no, go ahead, Lee. That's perfectly all right. So on September the 10th, ruth hall which she was a motion picture actress in hollywood she and i got married on september 10th and in the meantime we've had two two children one of them was born in uh, in england her name is pamela and the other girl was born here in uh, los Angeles. her name is carol and uh we have two very fine daughters and we're still married this is 25 years later and i'm very happy to say that we're still getting along very well
0: did you discuss the title lee
1: zoo in budapest yes yes i did oh you did i'm sorry Why I didn't think it was more successful. Let me see if I uh, covered all of way I'm
0: surprised that this wasn't this film wasn't more successful, Lee.
1: Well, the only thing I can uh, say on that at the moment is that I believe the word zoo uh, probably was uh, bad to use at that time because previous to this they'd made quite a few animal pictures, and I believe that he would used taken the word zoo out and used some other title, this would have been a, a very financially successful picture. It was heralded as one of the great critic pictures i know it got wonderful notices from for photography and for story and directing and acting and i believe it was one of the pictures that really set loretta young as a star in her own right now i'd like to go to 1934. one day my agent called me in to the office it was myron selznick And he said, Lee, how would you like to go to New York and be associated with Ben Hecht and Charlotte MacArthur? I said, who the hell are they? He said, well, they're two of the famous movie writers. I said, oh, yeah. He said, they've set up shop in New York to make some pictures. And they have asked for a cameraman to join them that uh, has directorial aspirations and that knows a little bit about uh, uh, directorial things because they don't believe in directors. They want to write and produce these pictures. and They don't want to have the typical Hollywood director because somehow or other, they don't feel that their stories that they've written have always come off on a screen the way they should come off so i said well how can that be myron i'm under contract at 20th century fox he said well i can get you out of your 20th century fox contract all right so if you want to take the job he said i'll double your salary, so you'll get twice the dough that you're getting now and he said if you if you're there for four or five months said, you'll get twice the money that you've been getting at 20th at at, uh, at the fox studio and i said well i'm somewhat of a gambler okay i'll go along with it so we cabled, we telegraphed that uh, I'd be coming along, but when I w- arrived in New York and I met Ben Hecht and Charlie MacArthur, he told me that the man that really put in the pitch for me was Myron, was David Selznick, that they had asked Myron uh, to suggest somebody to them that would be a lot of help, and Myron suggested Lee Garms, so uh, here I am. <clears throat> the first picture we made was was uh, this, the Hi. Crime Without Passion, when, and it was with Claude Rains. That was his first movie. And it was margot's first movie and it was with whitney bourne it was her first movie stanley ridges had been a stage actor uh ben hecht and McCarthy had written a beautiful script and just beautiful dialogue and we set out to do the picture and finally ran from one hazard to another i remember that ben hecht had hired a, a new york stage art designer from the from the stage to um design the sets well as an art director would do a stage art director would do the sets were were designed too big they were for a big theatrical stage so I suggested to Mr Heck that we pay the art director uh, off and that I would get with the construction man at the studio and we'd pull the sets down to the size to fit what we needed for uh, each uh, sequence or each scene that we had in the picture which we did this worked out very well during the making of uh, of uh, the crime without passion we had a hotel lobby set and we, one day we had some very distinguished friends in, in the setting as extras. We had Fanny Price, we had Hope Williams, we had Helen Hayes, and Alex Wilcott played a small part in the, in the picture. And in each picture we made, uh, Ben Hecht and Charlie MacArthur played small bits. They had a lot of fun. We had a, it was a wonderful association with them. Um, my job with Ben Hecht and Charlie MacArthur was sort of co-director and co-producer and uh, helped out on the sets and also i supervised all the film editing on all the pictures i know i went to ben on crime without passion and said i have an idea here that i'd like to do on the sets and he said go ahead and do it so i stuck each unit up separately i put a fireplace unit up by itself uh, a window and uh, two doors and i then i put the walls i had the The construction set uh, builders I had them put the walls back a little bit they were back about three feet from the uh, doors and the fireplace and the windows we did this I did this rather uh, thinking I'd get uh, possibly a little bit more depth of which I did Uh, the studio and Charlie MacArthur thought I was crazy but Ben Heck believed in me and said go ahead let him do what he wants if he falls well he falls but give him a chance to prove whether he's right or wrong well, uh, naturally, when I was in that spot, I was very careful to make sure that I was going to be right, and I was right. It worked out very well. At least when I played scenes up against the window, I didn't have any shadows all over the wall because the wall was three or four feet back. It gave me a chance to get the kind of lighting that I wanted to get without any, without having to do too much, uh, uh, futzing around to keep the shadows off. This worked out very well. Uh, after we got well organized into the picture, why the boys used to take time and uh, take turns in coming to the studio to direct. Ben Heck would come in one morning and, and would direct that day, and uh, Charlie would come in the next day, and they'd alternate. And sometimes they'd come in, and they'd start in the background of the set playing backgammon. And uh, they'd, when I'd say, roll em, why, as soon as the camera rolled over and we got the number on the camera, we said, all right, action, why, they'd stop playing backgammon. If one of the actors would make a mistake or blow up a line or something, why, they wouldn't say cut or I wouldn't say cut, they'd just start rolling the dice for the backgammon game, and we knew then that we had to start the scene over again. <laughs> this happened all the time they were really a couple of screwballs but it was wonderful working with them i loved it every minute of it all right let's we'll we'll continue on from on the scoundrel (coughs) uh, when we were making the scoundrel with noel coward that was really wonderful noel was a wonderful actor he gave a great performance it was his first movie by the way and he enjoyed it as much as we did uh, we think that was one of one of our best of the of the pictures we made that was one of the best then the next picture we made was called once in a blue moon this of course i should say uh, behind closed doors because it was one of our worst pictures the story itself was i think in my opinion the best of all the stories but our real trouble was that we had very bad actors the actors were cast according to the story in other words it was a story laid in russia So he decided to get russian actors and of course they had accents so thick you couldn't understand what they said so therefore when the story was released the picture was released you couldn't understand the actors he could understand it because he wrote the script but nobody else could so therefore the critics didn't know what it was all about so they scored a very bad picture but one redeeming feature about the picture was george antile's music it was really out of this world it got all kinds of prizes it was really beautiful Uh, i remember very well, uh, the picture got wonderful music notices in, in Boston. Of course, the picture didn't make any money, and Paramount was a little bit s- sore at us, but then, again, that's Ben Heck, and he believed that uh, it would come through, his writing would come through, but if he can't understand the actors, well, the writing doesn't come through either. Later on, I made another picture with Ben, which we made together. Charlie was out of this, wasn't in on this one. It was called Angels Over Broadway. This was made for Columbia Pictures for Harry Cohen at, uh, in Hollywood. That was an interesting picture. It was one of Rita Hayworth's early pictures. It was with Doug Fairbanks, Jr. and (coughs) Tommy Mitchell. This was a a, a very interesting story. We did it on a small budget and we made it, I think, in about 15 or 18 days. And this was an enjoyable picture to work on. It was very easy, very simple. Then a few years later, we went out to Republic and made a picture for for that studio called Spectre of the Rose. This uh, was uh, uh, a very interesting it was a dance ballet picture it was about uh, uh, about the uh, ballet people backstage what went on in their minds what made them tick? what made them what made them uh, what they were why they why they did that kind of work and I, anybody that's seen it will remember <coughs> what an interesting picture it was we had some wonderful dance routines in it. it's wonderful ballet Judith Anderson gave a wonderful performance I thought and so did Michael Sheffa Shekhov even Kirov and Viola Essen were the two young lovers i don't think we've heard much of them since Uh, they were uh, viola essen was really a wonderful uh, ballet dancer ballerina uh but she went back to her dancing and then later got married and had two or three children Ivan kirov ivan kirov has a a ballet dancing school here and does quite well with it um i remember an incident that we sent uh, the special photographic effect boys from the studio down to one of our tall buildings in los angeles and asked him to put a camera out on a uh a chord and photograph it lowering it down so that when Kirov, the dancer, jumped out of the window, uh, we were going to use this as a back projection plate and have Kirov was going to do enter shot after enter shot. He was going to smile and think this was the greatest enter shots. He did more of them than anybody ever did. But when he finally put the picture together, we decided that that wasn't the way to do it, that we would just let him jump out of the window and we'd hold the camera on the window and let the music be part of the scene of him going down. And all of a sudden, when he hit the sidewalk the big drum noise and then the music stopped entirely and this gave a terrific impact so i wanted to use that film that we had shot this would have been quite expensive to shoot this to go down and have the boy shoot this film so i used it earlier in a picture when the two when the two uh, lovers had run away and had gone to the big city uh we wanted to find out where they were so the finally the camera climbed up this building i used this film in reverse the camera climbed up this building and when it got to the window we made a quick dissolve and there they were in the building and they were if you've seen the picture you know what I mean it was the salvaging that film it wouldn't didn't go to waste okay
0: wasn't there one more <coughs> film with Ben
1: Hecht uh, yes there was we made a picture in 1952 I believe it was with uh, Ben Hecht uh, called Actors in sin and this was taken from two of his short stories one called uh, one called um, Oh, I don't remember the name of it now. Anyway, it was the United Artists release, and Hecht and Sid Culler sort of formed a production company, and it was produced and directed by Ben Hecht, and I was the co-director and, and uh, did the photography. The f- it was two stories, two separate stories. One, the story, the first story was with Eddie, Eddie G. Robinson and Marcia Hunt and Dana Hurley Hay, and the second story was with Eddie Albert and Jenny Hecht. Jenny is, Dan, is uh, Ben Hecht's daughter. She was about eight or nine years old at that time. And this particular story, the one with Eddie Albert, was about an agent, a theatrical agent, supposedly uh, Leland Hayward, and it was sh- uh, showing the uh, the uh, agents uh, what their racket is around in Hollywood and uh, uh, what they do to uh, connive to get more money for their stories and for their people. And then it was also about the executive heads of the motion picture industry. And if anyone uh, saw that picture, I think they got a lot of uh, fun out of it because it was very humorous. It was about this executive producer in one of the big studios that this agent had brought a story in written by this girl. And uh, he didn't remember who the girl was. He didn't know whether he had her on contract or what. But this executive had fallen in love with the story and loved it and wanted to buy it, but they couldn't find the author. And Finally after many days of trying to find the author the author finally came in They were all prepared for a great big famous writer and here this little eight or nine-year-old girl came in played by Jenny Hecht And it was really a humorous uh, hilarious comedy And I don't know why the picture wasn't successful But maybe it was a little bit too much about the reality of Hollywood is is uh, the only reason I know that it wasn't financially successful. Uh, in uh, 1936, after I'd finished uh, Once in a Blue Moon uh, for Ben Hacker, Charlie MacArthur, uh, I had a telegram, a cablegram from Alexander Corda from London, asking me if I wanted to come over. Uh, upon arriving, of course, I've told you this before, I came over to do Surrounding the Bergerac with Charles Lawton. and At that time, uh, Bill Menzies was directing uh, the H.G. Wells story, Shape of Things to Come and I used to visit uh, on Bill's set uh, almost every day. Uh, the settings and the story that he was doing was very, very interesting. It was uh, an awful lot of trick things in it, and all of the trick photography and the trick settings and all were executed by Ned Mann. He's one of Hollywood's very famous uh, special effects uh, and, and a miniature builder. Uh, while in, in, uh, in London with Corda, after uh, the Serrano uh, de Bergerac was called off, uh, Alex assigned me to a, a hist- history, the historical document, or historical story of the air. It was called "Conquest of the Air." I went to France and got a lot of early uh, French uh, scenes uh, of steeples and churches and things like that to use as backgrounds. And then we went up to Scotland. I did a lot of scenes up there of the early monks when they tried to fly uh, back to uh, Paris after visiting. Um, Uh, the uh, Sterling Castle they were they had big wings made and they tried to fly and of course that's all past history Um, and then I left Corda and I joined the Mac Shack's Capital Films and did the Elizabeth Bergner Paul Zinner picture called Dreaming Lips which was a remake of a picture that she had made originally in Germany then uh, I was still under contract to Mac Shack and I did the I was sort of the producer or watchdog as it were for Mac Shack again On a picture called lilac domino it was a from a very famous stage play then i finished that contract i joined with jack buchanan he had formed a company to work with uh his own he made his own company there with with uh arthur rank and that was before arthur rank had formed the big picture company that he now has in london and this picture we did was about an airplane builder was called the sky is the limit we made that in 1937 and it's interesting to note this was about an airplane factory and they were experimenting with with planes that had uh, long wings that took off and the minute they got up in the air why the wings retracted and became very small wings so the plane could fly much faster this was sort of an early history of what's I understand is going on today in the Air Force along in uh, December, of ni- the early part of December of 1938, I received a cablegram from David Selznick in Hollywood asking me if I would like to join uh, with his company to do the photography on Gone with the Wind. So my wife and I left the latter part of uh, December of 1930, uh, 1938, arriving in Hollywood, uh, the very early part of, of January 1939. The latter part of January, I think we started shooting on... Gone with the Wind, and I worked for the first 10 weeks with George Cukor as the director, (coughs) and then uh, George uh, agreed to disagree with David Selznick on some of the scenes, and the picture was stopped, and uh, Victor Fleming was hired as the new director, and uh, I was taken off the picture at that time, and uh, uh, Ernest Haller was hired to do the photography. But uh, all in all, I did about uh, eight or nine weeks, about eight weeks of the photography I did on the picture. And I think uh, if you look back on the picture, most of the photography that I did was covering practically all of the major interior scenes up to the burning of Atlanta. The burning of Atlanta scenes had been pre-production uh, material that David had been making over a period of a year or so prior to the time he actually started photographing the general action of the picture uh it was a wonderful assignment it was the new three color uh technicolor process uh that we were using bill menzies was the uh, production designer on the picture the sets were just wonderful vivian lee was excellent clark gable i think the whole cast was a wonderful uh selection from the book i believe the picture turned out to be one of probably one of the most successful financial pictures ever made uh david was uh, really uh Uh, on his toes on that picture I think he was at his best he uh, was very meticulous and very careful on everything he did he was very exacting Uh, he kept changing the script from time to time to meet uh, new ideas that were injected he and Vic Fleming got along wonderfully I was sorry that I couldn't have continued on Uh, I'd like to have very much I'd like to have had that credit unfortunately uh, my name was left off of the credit uh, Of the picture although David tells me that in the history of the motion picture archives my name is in there as one of the photographers and uh, but it was a shame that I didn't uh, have the name on the screen because I think I would have shared an Oscar with Ernie Haller a few years later I rejoined David Selznick again to do a picture called since you went away directed by John Cromwell this had Claudia Colbert, Jennifer Jones, Joe Cotton, Shirley Temple, Monty Woolley, Lionel Barrymore, Robert Walker. This was a very interesting picture. It was a war picture. And then uh, the next picture I did with uh, David was Dueling the Sun. <clears throat> this was directed by King Vidor. And this was also with Jennifer Jones and Joe Cotton and Gregory Peck and Lionel Barrymore, Herbert Marshall, Lillian Gish, Walter Houston, and Charles Bickford. This was a big epic it was a Western and uh, it was about two years in the making off and on two years in the making not not every day and the last picture I did with David was the Paradine case that was a that was an Alfred Hitchcock picture with Gregory Peck, Charles Lawton, Ethel Barrymore and Louis Jourdan and Valley. this was the Italian actress who was brought uh, to America for that uh, picture it was very very interesting working with Hitchcock he's uh, a wonderful picture maker he had been formerly an art director in England and made a lot of wonderful pictures and he his idea of suspense and timing is i think the best there is in the picture business <coughs> What was that picture name of it no. after finishing the No. case after finishing the parodying case with Hitchcock i was uh had a few months to go on my contract with Selznick and he loaned me to uh do a picture called caught an independent picture with an mgm release directed by max opals this was james mason's first american picture with Bel gettys and robert ryan it was a story uh based a little bit on the life of um, of uh howard hughes uh it was very interesting working with max opals he uh, had a way of telling a story with a camera that you felt that the camera was eavesdropping on the actors it, ne- it never seemed like the picture was made in hollywood it didn't seem like the picture was made at all it was very interesting i learned uh more about camera technique and what not to do with the camera working with max Opels. it was indeed a great pleasure working with this man Uh, just after finishing, uh, the picture called Caught with Max Opals, uh, with James Mason, um, I finished that film, and I was, I then went and joined with, um, uh, Sam Goldwyn. Greg Toland, his cinematographer for many years, had passed on, and the first picture I did, uh, with Goldwyn under contract was Rosanna McCoy. It was a very interesting picture, uh, directed by, um, Uh, Irving Reese with Farley Granger and Joan Evans was a new girl at that time and Raymond Massey and Charles Bickford Then the next picture that I did uh, for Golden was called my foolish heart directed by Mark Robeson with Susan Hayward and Dana Andrews This was another very interesting picture and Mark Robeson was a very young fair-haired director at that time and had been and made a few very inexpensive pictures and he was a very very good picture maker The last picture i made for Goldwyn was called our very own uh directed by david miller david miller was an old old friend of mine from the way way early mgm days this was with ann blythe and farley granger and also with joan evans and jane wyatt this was a very interesting picture i enjoyed working with david david uh, miller very very much we later made a picture uh the uh, uh, picture over at uh, over at uh, remember it oh here it is. Uh yeah, the next picture I made was with David Miller was a Columbia called H- Saturday's hero this was a football picture expose on football with John Derrick and donor Donna Reed Sidney Blackmer, and Alexander Knox this was a very hard-hitting real true football picture it was very interesting making this film I had some uh, startling football scenes that we took that took place right on the football field following back uh, 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 after the football receiver had uh, received the ball he ran the whole length of the field and we followed him close all the way across the field which uh, was a very hard uh, scene to do you couldn't use uh, a motorcycle or an automobile we tripped it with a, um, a big elect, big uh, uh, rubber bands we had big rubber cords and uh it was a very interesting uh, sequence that football sequence in that picture okay. i'd like to go back to 1947 with uh goldwin, samuel goldwin um, i was under contract to david selznick and uh they had loaned me to this picture to do with uh, Sam Goldwyn called The Secret Life of Walter Mitty with with uh, Danny Kay. Virginia Mayo, Doris Karloff, and Faye Boehner was directed by Norman MacLeod. Well, when I was told that I was to do this uh, picture uh, with Danny Kay, I said, oh, gosh, I don't want to do any picture with any comedians. I worked with comedians before. Uh, they've got the same pattern, and working four or five months with a guy like that, you'll go, you'll go nuts working with uh, with a comedian that every time a stranger comes on a set, they go through certain gags and stories and so forth. i said you get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again but that i have a surprise uh in store for me because danny Kaye was one comedian that i had never counted on would be different uh no matter what stranger came on he never repeated himself everything he said uh was funny and was original and never at any time during the five months that i worked with him on this picture did he ever repeat a gag or a line or anything else with any stranger. Everything was new and it was really hilarious working with him. I enjoyed my engagement with him very, very much. After finishing Detective Story, after finishing Saturday's Hero at Columbia with David Miller, uh, Willie Wyler sent for me at Paramount to do his film Detective Story with Kirk Douglas, Eleanor Parker, William Bendix, and Lee Grant this was a very interesting picture to do we had a 36-day shooting schedule and uh, Willie was uh, a little worried whether he thought we could do it in that uh, small amount of time I assured him that if he would give me my head and let me have the stage floors all uh, sanded and clean so that we wouldn't have to lay any dolly track and I had a new dolly called the crab dolly uh, that was more or less a, like a fluid camera that you might hold in your hand and I explained all these things to Willie he said well go ahead let's let's do it so uh, he had a very good script he didn't change the script and we went along at the end of the first day shooting we were a day ahead of schedule the end of the first week we were a week ahead of schedule when we finished the picture we finished it in 30 days and 30 instead of 36 and I might say that Willie was a great pleasure to work with on this picture he was very um, uh, nice to me he gave out many many reviews and said that it would have been impossible for him to make the picture in this short of time yeah uh, uh, unless he'd had the full cooperation of uh, of uh, me with his crab dolly and the way we uh, photographed the picture we were lucky in one respect that the story called for only two sets a police station upstairs and downstairs in New York so it was easy to handle uh, this kind of a situation with only two sets. There were only three lighting changes in the story, so it was very easy to do. It wasn't any great thing. We could have made the picture probably in 24 days if we'd have really put our minds to doing it. But all in all, it was really wonderful. And, and uh, Willie, of course, liked sharp focus photography, and so do I. And um, he had learned that from working on the uh, pictures with, uh, at uh, Goldwyn's with Greg Toland. And in fact, when I joined the... Goldwyn company to do those three or four pictures that i did i inherited the uh, camera and the lenses that greg tonan had made up to do the sharp focus pictures and uh, this was these were specially made lenses with waterhouse stops they weren't the old conventional iris stops in and by over lighting a bit and having special development at the consolidated lab we were able to get a very sharp picture when uh uh We placed our people in such a way that uh, when the camera focused on the people in the foreground the people in the background were also sharp and i like this very much because uh, in uh, in uh, enlarging the pictures today on the big screens uh, that we have why it gives a better uh, focus on the picture you don't find all that background all mushy anymore and uh, willie was insistent on having the sharp focus photography which i'm very grateful for because I'd had the experience, as I say, working on these four Goldwyn pictures earlier, and uh, so it was very easy for me to follow through to work with Willie and give him what he wanted. Uh, Along about uh, September of 1953, I was sitting home one day when I had a cablegram from the south of France. from Gregory Radoff my old friend and He asked me if I would uh, like to come and make a picture with him and with Howard Hawks in Egypt and I cabled back. Yes, I would So as time went on I left here toward the end of October To join with mr. Radoff and his backer in Paris. I stayed in Paris for about three weeks and then we went on to Cairo and about Christmas time of 1950. We started making a film starring Gregory Radoff and he also was a director and the producer It was called Abdullah's harem The story was about ex-king Farouk We worked in the palaces in uh, Alexandria and in Cairo It was a very interesting picture. We finished shooting that about April of 1954 and then I joined Howard Hawks in doing his big film about the pyramids called The Land of the Pharaohs. This was a, a very early uh, cinemascope, and it was in Warner color. It was a very big epic. We were about uh, three months doing the exteriors in, in and around uh, uh, Cairo. We worked up in Upper Egypt, uh, and then we went to, uh, finally we went to, to uh, Rome to do all of, uh, all of the interiors. We finished that picture about the end of September, and then I, <clears throat> my wife and two children, joined me there and had about a couple of months in uh, in Rome, and then we bought a Volkswagen bus, called the uh, bus the uh, like a station wagon. It was a red Volkswagen bus, a microbus, and we toured all through uh, Italy and Venice and went up through Austria and. Uh, went to uh, germany and over to paris and then we drove over to calais and put the boat the uh, car on the boat and went over to london and visited some friends there and then we shipped the car back and then i came back to hollywood to do a picture another picture with willie weiler called detective story with kirk douglas and eleanor parker uh, not detective story i mean desperate, desperate hours. hours with uh, directed by willie weiler with humphrey bogart frederick march arthur kennedy and martha scott this was the first VistaVision picture made in black and white it was about the second or third of the VistaVision pictures and working in this wide film with the sharp folks focus lenses was rather a difficult thing to do it was a challenge but all in all I think Desperate Hours was a very interesting picture I enjoyed very much uh, doing this film and particularly working with Willie Weiler and I believe it was one of Humphrey Bogart's last films before he passed on After finishing Desperate Hours with Willie Wilder at Paramount, I made a survey trip to Spain. I went to Madrid for about a week surveying for a future picture which we never made. Then I came back and joined with Sam Goldwyn, Jr. Uh, this was his first picture as a producer for United Artists. It was entitled Man with a Gun with Robert Mitchum, Jan Sterling, Karen Sharpe, and Henry Hull. And it was directed by Richard Wilson. He was a scenario writer and had written a story and the script this was also his first picture as a director. So my many years' experience came in very helpful to these two boys. I later, uh, later on, about a year later, I made another picture with Sam Goldwyn, Jr., called The Shark Fighters. This was also United Artists, a Technicolor Cinemascope picture with Victor Mature, Karen Steele, and James Olson. This was directed by Jerry Hopper, and we made this off of the south coast of um, um, Havana. Havana. Um, in cuba it was a very interesting island um, called the isle of pines and it was the further the furthermost southern part where all the big game fish are and the sharks and so forth it was very lovely lush country we were there in the early spring it was uh, a very lovely beautiful spot the water was the bluest i've ever seen and if any of you have seen shark fighters i'm sure you'll see some very beautiful color photography then i stayed over in havana and did another picture called the big boodle this was united artists picture with earl flynn and richard wilson was also the director of that picture this we made all in and around havana using natural interiors and havana is truly a beautiful city a lovely spot for vacation i enjoyed very much my working in havana and all around cuba it was indeed a beautiful country and the food is just wonderful in the fall of 1957 i went to new york to do a picture called never love a stranger from harold robbins book he was also the producer along with richard day the very famous hollywood art director that's probably won more awards for his art direction than any other art director in the comp in the in the picture business this starred john barrymore jr and was released by allied artists uh, in 1956 1955 rather i made a picture with henry hathaway Called the bottom of the bottle this was 20th century fox was deluxe color cinemascope with van johnson and joe cotton and ruth roman and then a little later on that same year i did a picture with henry coster for 20th fox called d-day the sixth of june with robert taylor and richard todd and dana uh, dana winter and edmund o'brien this was a war a war, uh, a war uh, picture it was very interesting it was a love story actually I guess the war uh, background it was a lovely, lovely film. Then, uh, when the big film uh, story started to break, making the big wide pictures, I formed a company with John Ireland and Joanne Drew, his wife, and McDonald Carey and myself. We made a 3D Eastman color picture called Hannah Lee. <coughs> this was the first 3D Western. We had a lot of fun making it. We made it for about $200,000. We made it in about 15 or 16 days of shooting. It was a challenge to make. A three-day 3d picture we none of us knew anything about it but it was a lot of fun doing it and unfortunately we got into the 3d uh, market just after the 3d bubble had broken so we didn't make a fortune like a lot of other people did
0: Thank You Lee Garms for giving so much of your time so generously to making this excellent tape
1: uh, george it was a pleasure to do this i might add one thing that one of the happiest moments in my life came last october 1947 1957 i'm 10 years back uh when i've just finished never love a stranger in new york <coughs> a film with john barrymore jr uh, i my wife and i motored up in our new lincoln car to uh, rochester to be there to be part of the rochester awards uh, for the Eastman House uh, Award uh, do, uh, function. It was a pleasure uh, meeting uh, uh, Oscar Solbert and James Card and you, and we had a wonderful time. My wife and I often talk about the hospitality and the wonderful uh, time that we had, and how the awards were uh, in that beautiful Eastman uh, Theater. And uh, we love Rochester very much, and someday I hope to come to Rochester and spend uh, two or three weeks and go through the Eastman Kodak plant. is one of my desires to really see um, that wonderful plant and to go and to have a conductor tour through it.
0: This is to be inserted around 520 on the counter.
1: How can that be, Myron? I'm under contract to Fox Film Corporation.
0: This is to be inserted around 362
1: on the counter. Uh, later on the same evening, my wife and I went in to dine at the Savoy Hotel in London, and Joe and Marlena were having dinner there. <coughs> and Joe said to me, Lee, why don't you visit me on the set? And, I, and, and uh, I said, what? I don't want to come on your set and be insulted and have a spotlight thrown on my face and say, who the hell are you?